Hello, and welcome to Modern Media Moguls. My name is Kirk Barbera, and one thing that I've noticed recently is that everyone is creating like it's 1909. So me and my business partner, this is me, and this is my business partner, Marco Romero, we created a media company called Real Elite. And it's our goal to help small, medium, and large businesses create their own media departments. And we're launching a show called Modern Media Moguls, where we will be talking to the new moguls of video, audio, and written content in a 2018 world. We also have a book coming out called From Showbiz to Your Biz, Using Video to Grow Your Offline Business. And you can be a part of the creation of that book. It's a new world, and media is no longer a creation of some brain in the tower. It's now a symbiotic process between the creator and the audience. So you can learn more about the book process in the future. In our inaugural episode of Modern Media Moguls, I wanted to give you a brief history of media so that you can learn where we've been to better appreciate where we are and where we're going. So film began as the businessman's art. But through a series of unfortunate interventions, morphed into a Frankenstein monster of extravagance, inefficiency, and narcissism. After over 100 years of improved technology and camera sound and lighting equipment, the cost of production never went down, but rather increased steadily. Even producing local commercials were so costly that at best, small most small businesses could create one or two commercials in a lifetime. This rising cost was quite unique to film production. Cars, refrigerators, airplanes, washing machines, and all manner of products precipitously decreased in price while increasing in quality. Primarily, this was due to the very unique nature of filmmaking and its history, one that was flipped on its head in 2007 for the benefit of small business owners the world over. Moving pictures were born in the late 19th century. As the brainchild of the great business-minded inventor, Thomas Edison, the early film industry, in fact, began on the East Coast and was modeled after manufacturing principles of that time. In this era of silent films, uh, film producers worked for large companies like Vitagraph and Biograph. From the outside, these companies appeared in many ways to look like a car manufacturer or a manufacturer of rope. Film cameras were lined up in a row with movie sets in front of the cameras. Numerous short movies were filmed side by side simultaneously. Since there was no sound, it didn't really matter if one camera was placed near another so long as they stayed out of each other's view. Business reigned in this early part of film. The business operators created standards and techniques like call sheets and scripts and all the materials needed to mass produce for the film for the consumption of the entire world. Our film terms today reflect this early manufacturing production line model. 
The stages of producing a film are, are pre-production, where the film is planned, designed, and scripted. Then there is production, where the filming occurs. Then there is post-production, where the editing and fine-tuning and any corrections occur. In a manufacturing plant, there must be a plant manager who oversees the entire project. And with the film, there is a film producer who oversees the entire project from production to post and into marketing and sales. A plant manager would hire a designer, while a film producer would hire a director. Not coincidentally, film grew steadily in America. After all, America has always been the land of business and industry, and film is a businessman's art. Many Europeans were experimenting with film performances at this time. Rather than modeling themselves after the business industry, they modeled themselves after the fancy, elaborate, elegant theater of Europe. In an attempt to capture the financial success of American films, Europeans began copying only the superficial elements in American cinema, while ignoring the more crucial business processes involved. Britain post-World War I became fascinated with American war films such as The Four Horsemen, The Big Parade, and What Price Glory. Rather than take a business-minded approach, filmmaking became a matter of national pride. And the British film companies raised numerous, enormous funds from the people and their government of over $40 million, almost half a billion dollars in uh, 2016 U.S. dollars. From this enormous pot of money, they made extravagant war films that were popular in Britain for a year or two and then faded into, exist into non-existence. Unlike their American counterparts, these British specials were never popular outside their homeland. In America, men with a keen eye on profits took a more frugal approach. Movies were entertainment for the masses. Exhibition halls, for example, were not modeled after fancy theater auditoriums, where, which were so expensive an average Joe could never afford to attend. Rather, they were modeled after the circus. P.T. Barnum was a first adopter of early film exhi exhibition. These first exhibitions were five cents per show, called Nickelodeons. As the film production standards improved, so too did the exhibition halls. Soon, films were being shown above bars and barbershops for 10 cents per show. Then they moved into dedicated halls with a live piano player charging 25 cents per show. While prices did increase, they did so always with a mind toward attracting the masses. The first generation of filmmakers could be considered pure businessmen. They maximized efficiency and increased profits. In other words, they built a business. Their huge oversight, unfortunately, was to almost completely ignore the artistic element of film. To these first businessmen, film was merely a novelty, not an art. The second generation of filmmakers overlapped with this first generation in the early 1903 to 1915 era. This was an era of experimentation par excellence. Men like D.W. Griffith focused on perfecting the art form of camera work and editing. He invented many techniques which today are rudimentary, and he is considered the father of film editing. Other early film producers were focused on star power. These producers attempted to draw audiences in 
with stars like Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin. They developed the modern gossip column in America, often fabricating stories about the lives of their actors. It was the third generation that truly began to perfect art and business of filmmaking. You know, as an art form, film is unique. Unlike painting, sculpture, or music, film required very costly cameras, lighting, and eventually sound equipment. It required special distribution techniques to duplicate a film reel to order in order to show a film in multiple show houses. The industry also had to contend with expensive film costs. For those who remember the 90s, a simple photo camera using real film, not digital, cost around $15 to $20 for 24 exposures. To produce the effect of a moving picture required at minimum 24 frames per second. This means 24 exposures per second. That means every second of cranking a film camera was using the equivalent of a 24-shot photo camera. Add to that developing and editing the film, not to mention set design, crew members, costume, stages, marketing, distribution, and much more. Film as an art form is by and large the most expensive art outside of architecture and possibly theater. The third generation came to dominate in the 1915-1939 era. These were men who founded the great studio, Adolf Zucker and Paramount, Carl Leimel and Universal, Louis B. Mayer, MGM, Jack and Harry Warner, the Warner Brothers, Harry Cohn, Columbia Pictures, and William Fox, Fox. Not without merit, they were dubbed the movie moguls. With their respective companies, these moguls were titled executive producers. To attain efficiency, they kept much of the industrial structure but allowed for certain flexibilities within their studio parameters. The executives would hire producers who specialized in a certain type of film. For instance, one producer might oversee the production of several westerns over the course of a year. Or if he were adept in comedy, he'd produce numerous comedies. Each producer would hire a creative director to work with actors, select the set design, work on the script, and the script breakdown. To many, this is the golden era of film. The fourth generation did not detract from the previous, but wisely built upon it. This is the 1939 to 1959 era. Most producers of this era were related to the previous generation, and the most profitable and prestigious of this group was a man named David O. Selznick. He grew up watching his father produce films, and would eventually marry the daughter of Louis B. Mayer, of MGM. This era brought us the great war films of World War II, the perfection of the Western genre, and, of course, the most profitable film of all time adjusted for inflation, Gone with the Wind, produced by Selznick. Much began to change in the 1960s as the new generation made their living ridiculing or destroying the values of the previous one. For instance, the humorous movie Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, 1969, with Robert Redford, essentially destroyed the Western as a serious genre. They so ridiculed the norms in Westerns that no audience member could ever take a Western seriously again. 
During this time, film costs increased but remained manageable. And the new medium of television acted as a gateway to the superior film product. The studios of old held on to their power due to their extensive library of content. And as televisions began emerging in the living room of every American, they needed plenty of content to show to their new audience. The movie studios, who had been producing thousands of films, over the previous half century, were more than happy to sell to TV stations across uh, access to some of these films. At this point, it was more than a new generation of filmmakers that emerged. It was an entirely new conception of film distribution. Rather than focusing on the producing of a single product, studios, for example, the Disney studio, focused on producing movies for the purpose of owning the intellectual property. Mickey Mouse, Snow White, Cinderella would be profitable movies, but much more profitable toys, dolls, lunchboxes, and amusement parks. What's more, these studios own the rights to thousands of hours of rich movie content, which the TV industry desperately needed. This power, coupled with legal jujitsu, gave rise to the mega media conglomerates of the 1980s. These conglomerates own film studios, TV stations, newspapers, magazines, book publishers, and radio stations. The powerful six were General Electric, News Corp, Disney, Viacom, Time Warner, and CBS. We call them the mass media. With the ability to offset costs in a multi-billion dollar international corporation, Film and video production costs skyrocketed. By the early 2000s, films averaged over $100 million in overall cost. The entire 20th century was an enormous boon for American businesses abroad. Much of the success of American businesses during this time was due in large part to the exports of these movies, our biggest export. Movies being a strong marketing arm for business. When Europeans saw the grand set designs and lavish costumes of filmmakers like Cecil B. DeMille in the 1920s and 1930s, they purchased American goods in the billions. They set up a trend popular to this day, films and videos that help sell American products and services. The term created was, of course, product placement. Unfortunately, the cost of camera film, actors, and sets were prohibitive to most small and medium-sized businesses in America. In the 1980s, all the way up until recent times, to produce and distribute a small local commercial was at minimum a $10,000 project and likely tens of thousands of dollars, or more if you wanted to extend outside of the local area. Big corporations could afford to pay these prices with no problem. Thus, the rise of mega corporations, and the fall of small businesses during this time period. Then, in 2007, a scrawny Californian in a black turtleneck and blue jeans walked out onto a darkened stage and put a dent in the universe. Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone and revolutionized the production and distribution of video, 
photography, written, and audio content. In effect, Steve Jobs put a radio, a television, and a newspaper in over three billion pockets. The world is still reeling from this behemoth of an invention. In 2017, over one billion hours of video is watched through a mobile device daily. Novelists like Andy Weir no longer write a manuscript, send it to the publisher, and beg to be published. Instead, Andy started a blog and self-published his novel, The Martian, thus forcing the publishers to beg him for the right to distribute the book. Businessmen of all sizes can now communicate to absolutely any person they wish with the push of a button. The lifeblood of any business, small business or otherwise, is word of mouth, and that has gone online and in our pockets. The business operators who are winning in this new era have embraced this fact of new media and produced media content in written audio or video form. Through brand new marketing strategies, upstarts are toppling giants. A new generation of real estate professional is becoming more trusted than the old because customers want to spend time with their agents. Quality time has gone online too. This is not to say that in-person is unimportant, quite the opposite. But online activity is the gateway to in-person connections and referrals. This book and this show will be your guide to this new media experience. We're going to work hard to make sure that your biz is now in showbiz. Thank you.